Welcome to the Grace Community Church Podcast. We are grace for everyone, community for everyone, church for everyone. We hope that as you listen to the message from this past Sunday, that your heart is encouraged and you find yourself being drawn to Jesus wherever you're tuning in from. We are so grateful that you've joined us and pray that you'll be blessed as you listen to this week's message. Hey friends, a couple of years ago, there was a game going around online where people were playing uh, Lamentations or Taylor Swift lyric? Was it a verse from Lamentations or a Taylor Swift lyric? So the creators of this game took some Taylor Swift lyrics, arguably the biggest pop star of all time at this point, um, and verses from the message translation of the Bible. And the trick was to guess, was it a Taylor Swift lyric or a verse from Lamentations? And it was harder than you think. In fact, we're going to play a couple of them just for fun. You can play along at home. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting the bottom. Taylor Swift or Lamentations? Your guess? Lamentations. I I weep, weep buckets of tears, and not a soul within miles around cares. Is that Swifty or is it Lamentations? Lamentations. Uh, Did you have to do this? I was thinking you could be trusted. Okay, that one's Taylor Swift. Maybe a couple more. We've been to hell and back. We've nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. Lamentations. See the vultures circling dark clouds. Love's a fragile little flame. It could burn out. Tay-Tay, that's Taylor Swift. Well done. But it was harder than you think, I imagine, because both Taylor Swift and Lamentations are pure poetry. And we're going to dig into that in just a minute. I speak of lament today because we have entered the sacred season of Lent. Those 40 days that prepare us for Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And for centuries, the the church has marked off these days for repentance and reflection. And for centuries, the book of Lamentations has been a companion for the church as they navigate this season. But Lamentations is not a very fashionable book. In fact, I would venture to guess that many of you have not read it devotionally in the last little while and are tempted to skip over it, if you can even find it, in your Old Testament. Because it feels like it's from a completely different space and time. And that's because it is. And while the heartache that's described in the poetry of Lamentations is in many ways specific to the story of the people of Israel and the fall of Jerusalem, It does have much to show us about our own sin and shame. It has much to teach us about processing our own suffering and pain. One of the things that those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, those of us who are people of the resurrection, people who have the hope of heaven, maybe have not learned to do very well, or at least not as well as some of our Jewish brothers and sisters, is lament. We tend to cover up our pain by talking about victory and overcoming. And this season is meant to help us kind of step away from some of that language, at least for a bit, to prepare ourselves more for Good Friday instead of jumping straight to Easter Sunday. We wrestle with our grief. We, we process our pain and our suffering. And we, we slow down enough to look into the fact that from dust we've been made into dust we will return. We need to learn the language of lament. Now, I'm going to do my best to not have this whole season be just like a Debbie Downer. I, I, I hope that each 
Sunday as we dig into Lamentations, that there's still some light, that there's still some hope in the midst of some of the hard things that we're going to get into. But I also don't want to gloss over the fact that we all, all of us, experience pain and suffering. And part of getting through it, part of um, seeing our faith strengthened in the midst of it, is actually admitting and walking through our pain. It's not glossing over. It's not setting it, to, setting it aside. It's feeling all of the feelings. It's getting into those uh, dark places and those hard things. A church or, or a theology that refuses to acknowledge our suffering will either cause people to hide their pain, you know, painting on the like, I'm fine, everything's fine face when we come into church, or it'll cause those who are hurting to just limp back out of the church, having found no help or healing in our midst. And I don't want that. And I don't think that God wants that either. There's an element of this season that demands that we get in touch with those things that bring sorrow and heartache into our lives. And lament gives us language to process those things. And so we're getting into a lamentation-style Lent today. And the Bible has a few other places, like the Psalms, where we hear this language of lament. Lament is a, is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. It's, it's the sense of loss over what might have been or grief of what has happened. It's a railing against the pain that we feel. It's, it's calling out for someone to see it, to feel it with us, to deliver us from it. It's pouring out our grief and sorrow. And the book of Lamentations is like five straight chapters of unfiltered, unedited, unadulterated lament. And so a couple of things to note before we dive into this short book. Number one, buckle up. It's a short book, but boy is it dark. It is graphic. There are moments in this book that would be rated R if it was made into a movie. And I know that might seem weird to say about a book of the Bible, but there are reasons why this book doesn't get the regular coverage on Sunday morning sermon series. I consider this a bit of a trigger warning. I'm going to do my best to give you a heads up in the moment when we hit some of those darker or more difficult passages. But if you're reading this along on your own, you're going to come across some disturbing things in the book of Lamentations. So number one, buckle up. That's kind of the point of this book though. This book is meant to plunge the depths of our despair. It's to wrestle with our suffering and pain. It's to wrestle with our shame. And, and the book was written in the wake of the destruction of the great city. And it wasn't just that the city had been destroyed. This was a symbol that God had abandoned his people. It was the final proof. He hadn't really, but that was, that was how the people felt when they had been brought into the promised land. The, the, the nation of Israel had been separated into two kingdoms years before this happened. And the northern kingdom, which was often referred to simply as Israel with Judah in the south, They'd been taken into captivity by the Babylonians years earlier. And so the southern kingdom, who had remained faithful to God maybe a little bit better or a little bit longer, um, was meant to heed some of the warnings that had happened to their brothers and sisters in the north. They were supposed to learn from their neighbors' mistakes, but, but sadly, they followed in their wicked ways. And in 586 BC, the, the Assyrians destroyed the city. They terrorized tore down every uh, stone of the great temple. They carried the people into exile. They, the people were no longer in the land that they had been promised. They were no longer able to worship in the great temple where God's presence dwelled. The people had been forsaken. They'd been punished. They'd been brought low. And so the poet writes from that place of despair. So it's this book. So buckle up, it gets dark. It's, it's a book full of grief and sorrow and anguish. But it's also poetry. This is something else that is helpful for us 
to think about while we're reading it. We are reading poetry. It's a poetry uh, or a poem of lament, and it's a beautifully crafted poem. It's not obvious in our English translation, but if you look in your Bible, if you have a physical copy, you may notice that like chapter one has 22 verses, chapter two has 22 verses, chapter three has 66, which is three times 22, and then chapter four and five both have 22. That's because the Hebrew alphabet is made up of 22 letters and each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So this is a poem that is actually an acrostic. And so you, you'll notice that chapters one, two, four, and five all have the 22 verses. So this is sort of like an A to Z of suffering. The, the poet has crafted this, maybe helping bring some order to the chaos that we experience in our grief to help us process, but, but there's, it, it is a very beautifully crafted um, poem. And like all good poetry, there's all sorts of symbolism and allegory, metaphor, hyperbole. There's imagery that's meant to evoke emotion. And so we're meant to feel big things when we read this. It's meant to disrupt us. It's meant to disturb. So, so allow the words to do that. Allow this poetry of lament to move you. I, I say poet, uh, and I don't name an author because we're not entirely sure of who the author is of Lamentations. Some claim that it was Jeremiah the prophet, and, and it fits with the timeline. He lived at the same time as the destruction and exile. Uh, but there's many reasons from the text that would indicate it probably wasn't Jeremiah. And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter if it was or it wasn't. It doesn't matter who wrote this masterpiece. It's clear that it's been given to us and it's given voice to the suffering of God's people, not only in that time, but for all time. That we now have this book that we can uh, tap into some of those feelings that we have when we suffer. Help us process our suffering in ways that help us continue to call out on God. So with, with that like preamble, those little caveats, that little introduction, let's begin our Lamentations style Lent. Come with me, basically to the middle of your Bible, right after Jeremiah, right before Ezekiel, where we get into the poem. Lamentations 1, we read, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people, how like a widow is she, who, was, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. The, the very first word of this poem sets the tone for the whole book. How deserted. And that word how is, it's not just a like simple like inquiry for information like, uh, it's a cry of disbelief. It's, it's the same word that starts chapter two and chapter four. It's, there's a, an exclamation of grief in that word. Sort of like, how on earth is this happening? 
or, or how long will this last? Or how is it possible that this is where we are? You know, when you ask those questions and you're like, you're incredulous, you can't believe that it's as bad as it is. How the mighty have fallen. It's that sort of how desolate, how deserted. This once great city, this symbol of God's very presence with his people, this thing that was teeming with life is now desolate. It's empty and lifeless. How like a widow is she? She who was once a queen is now a slave. The, the author of the poem personifies the city of Jerusalem that lies in ruin and the people that have been taken into exile. The, the Babylons had laid waste to this once great city and they left nothing standing. They decimated everything. History tells us that it was like systematically destroyed by fire. And those who hadn't fled into the surrounding countryside were either killed or taken captive. They were made slaves. Those who were the children of the promise those who had been delivered from Egypt were now enslaved once again. They had been orphaned, but why? Now, we catch a hint in verse two. Among all her lovers, there is no one. All her friends have become her enemies. This is not some faithful widow. This is an unfaithful partner whose infidelity has left her alone. And if it wasn't clear enough that it was because of her unfaithfulness that she's in the situation she's in, it's really clear in verse five. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. So remember, it's poetry. We're not talking about a physical woman here. We're talking about the people of Israel. We're talking about the great city. We're talking about the kingdom of Judah, that they have been unfaithful to their God, that they have been, uh, because of their many sins, this is the consequences of their actions. It's not that God has abandoned the city. He is present, actually, in, in a pretty terrifying way. He's brought upon the city the consequences of their sins. The, the wrath of God has been poured out. They had for years turned their backs on the covenant. They've worshipped other gods. They've defiled the feasts and festivals. They, and this is what happened to the northern kingdom. And they didn't heed that warning. So now it's happened to them. It says that they all, nobody goes up to the festivals anymore. The, the priests are moaning because the, the gates, nobody's walking through the gates to come up to the festivals because people have turned their back on God. We continue reading. It says, in the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed, she says. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter the assembly. All her people groan as they stretch, or sorry, as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. She says, look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was afflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they are woven together. They have been hung around my neck and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned 
an army against me to crush my young man. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. Now, remember, this book is bleak. It gets a little graphic. She's being mocked and laughed at in her destruction. Those who were once friends have now become enemies and they have seen her naked and they are mocking her. Like, all of her sin has been laid bare and brought out in front of them. And the imagery in this section would have been very obvious to the people of Israel when they were reading it. The, the, the picture here is a woman who's been caught in adultery, that she's been laid bare and people are mocking her for the decisions that she has made. So there's a public shaming. They've all seen her naked. But it gets worse. Like verse 10 there isn't just describing the plunder of the city. If you read it in the context of the verses before, they've all seen her nakedness. Her filthiness has clung to her skirts. The enemy has laid hands on her treasures, entered her sanctuary. The, the original Hebrew there is packed with sexual imagery. Uh, the filthiness is actually sometimes translated as uncleanness because it speaks of like menstrual flow. Like there's, there's language there that's just very charged that maybe doesn't show up in our English. And so I hesitate to put too sharp of a point on this, but in case we miss the depths of this imagery, the poet is describing a victim of assault, of, of violent assault. And he's wanting to paint the picture that this is how far Jerusalem has fallen. This is how far they have, um, because of their sin, because of their turning away from God's goodness, the enemy has come in and laid waste to the land. In this account, it's, it's written in a way that we, we can't help but pity or feel compassion for Jerusalem. To feel compassion for this woman personified. That when at one time she entertained other lovers and gave no thought for her future, that path has led her to a place of destruction. And so she's desolate. And the author calls us to look upon that desolation with some compassion. Because Jerusalem, or the woman, the widow, calls out, she wails. She wails to God, look and consider. God, look, look upon me and see what this has done. She calls out to all who would pass by and pass judgment on her. Is this nothing to you? All you who pass by, look around and see. Is, is there any suffering like my suffering that the Lord has brought on me in his fierce anger? She describes the suffering that she's enduring. She admits the source of it, though, in this beautiful piece of poetry. She says, My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they are woven together, and they've been hung on my neck. The Lord has sapped my strength. He's given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. My sins have been bound into a yoke, woven together and placed on my neck. This is a really, uh, a really clever but also beautiful uh, and heartbreaking way to describe sin. And that's the thing about sin is it may start off as this one thin strand of thing that, you know, we can manage it or, or it's not that bad or it's not that big of a deal. But, but then one strand turns into two or to three and all of a sudden it becomes this thing that's woven together that weighs heavy on us. It becomes a yoke. Sin always keeps us longer than we wanted to stay. It always takes us further than we wanted to go. It always weighs us down, trips us up. It drags us into dark places. Our sin, those things that we say and do that bring darkness and destruction into our world, whether it's the unkind things that we say to other people, those things that we, we do that bring shame upon ourselves or upon others, those things that work in opposition to the goodness and light of the kingdom, they become a weight on our shoulders. They can feel like a yoke around our neck. 
And before we get feeling like there's no hope, we are able to actually step out of this part of the story and look ahead to the deliverance that one day will come. We're able to look ahead to the one who would deliver us from our sin and shame. When I hear that word yoke, when I hear that yoke of sin being placed on our shoulders, shoulders, I'm reminded of the words of Jesus where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, those who are wearing this yoke upon you. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus invites us to take that yoke of sin and exchange it for his yoke, for the yoke of compassion and forgiveness and grace and mercy, that, that we might take his teaching and live in his ways instead of our ways of sin. That Jesus is the one who comes to set us free. John 1, 1 makes it pretty clear in verses 8 and 9. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So there is hope, even in the midst. There is a way forward. But the point of this season, the point of this poem, is for us to grapple with the seriousness of our sin. That often, not always, but often, the suffering that comes into our life, the pain that we endure, is a result of, or the consequences of, our poor choices, of our, uh, our re we're reaping what we have sown. We need to recognize the consequences of our actions and we need to take heart how we hurt ourselves and how we hurt each other. The, the calamity has come upon the city, this personified virgin daughter Judah. It's come because of her many sins. And it's in that context that we hear the voice of the daughter Zion as we read the last few verses. She says, This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors became his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look at my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress. They rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day you have announced so that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my sins. My groans are many and my heart is faint. <laughs> I told you we got to buckle up because this is bleak, right? This chapter doesn't end on a high note. There's no resolution. There's no God coming to save yet. If we didn't jump ahead to some of the New Testament and the promise of Jesus, we'd be sitting in this place where it's like, we are broken. There is no one to comfort us. And I want to be careful not to leave you in a place of total despair. But I think it's important for us to feel and hear some of these hard things. I, I want us to be careful about jumping right to Easter and resurrection. Because we've all had times where we have felt alone, where there is no one to comfort us. That phrase pops up five or six times in just 22 verses. No help, no comfort. I am in distress. I'm, we have maybe felt faint all the day. We have had our eyes overflowing with tears. We've been distressed, in torment, disturbed. 
the truth is we're not alone and neither is daughter Zion in this passage because she is calling out to the Lord. She says, look, Lord, look upon my distress. Do you see me? Do you hear me? She's still calling out. There is still this desire to connect with the one who has allowed this calamity to come upon her. We need to feel these hard things, but lament gives us language to express our grief, our sorrow, and our suffering. And God is able to hear that lament. God is able to take that upon him. These are not words that he is shocked or disturbed by. Even in the admission of her sin, she still calls out to God for justice and mercy. She says, I've been rebellious. I've been sinful. God, do you see what's happening though? Notice that even though she's been unfaithful, she continues to call out to the one who's been faithful to her. There are glimmers of hope, but there are also a ton of unanswered questions and concerns in this first part of the poem, which is just like real life, right? Glimmers of hope, but a ton of unanswered questions and concerns. The key, at least in this season, is to continue leaning into the one who calls us beloved in spite of our unfaithfulness who does see our despair and promises to draw near. The key for us is to be quick with our confession when we sin, like daughter Zion who says, I have been rebellious. I know that the reason why I'm suffering is because I have turned my back on God. God, do you see me? Do you hear me? Do you see what I am going through? There is no one else around me. I have been stripped bare. The key is for us to be quick with our confession when we sin, to not allow those things to continue to be woven together into a yoke that weighs us down and threatens to strangle us, to bring those dark things into the light, to keep short accounts with our Savior, that it's, it's not about what can we get away with, how close to the line can we get, but we allow God to, to cleanse us and to bring us back into the light. This is what the season of Lent is, is all about. It's coming to grips with our mortality and our frailty that we so often fall short of his perfection and divinity. But he loves us. He loves these little creatures of clay more than we could ever imagine. So give language to your sorrow this season. Begin to learn to lament. And we'll continue this lamentation-style Lent as we prepare our hearts and remember the cross of Good Friday and eventually the empty tomb of Easter, where we'll be able to declare those walls that they put to hold us back will fall down. The time will come for us to finally win and we'll sing hallelujah, we'll sing hallelujah. For those of you keeping score from the beginning, that one was Taylor Swift. Let's pray. Lord, we have all experienced suffering to some degree. We've all known the darkness and loneliness that comes with it. We recognize those times where we suffer the consequences of our poor choices, of the sin that we engage in that spills into other areas of life. We know the grief and the sorrow, and we maybe haven't always had language to express it. So would you help us to call out to you even in the midst of that? To call out and, and, and admit our rebelliousness, to admit our sin, to, to ask for you to forgive us? That the words of lamentations, the Psalms of lament, that we find in scripture would give us language for wrestling with these feelings that, that we know that we're not abandoned. In those moments where we face suffering that isn't a result of our sin, we, we still call out to you for comfort and mercy. We know that not everything is a result of our sin, but would you help us when it is to, to have real and deep confession, that, that we might 
with the help of your spirit, root out those things in our hearts that lead us down dark paths, that we might confess our sin, that you might purify us from all unrighteousness. Would you help us, Lord, to to sit in this season of Lent, to feel all of the feelings that we need to feel, to recognize your presence, especially in the dark places when we feel alone, to know that while it may feel like there's no one around to comfort, you are there, you draw near to us. In our weeping, in our wailing, would we still call out to you? For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for Grace Online, Church at Home. I'm praying that this Lamentation-style Lent will be a blessing to you as you journey with us to Easter. Uh, But if you found this message hard or you're in a dark place, um, if you feel like there's no one to comfort you, no one to, to help around, please reach out. Reach out to us. Call a counselor or a therapist. Call a hotline number if you're in a really dark place. Know that there are those around who, who care, that can, and will walk with you. Um, one, of the, one of the things about feeling these deep feelings is they can get really heavy and really hard. And just know that you are not alone. We do this together. None of us were meant to walk alone. So if we can come alongside, please let us know. As we work through this season of confession and lament, we pray this blessing over you. May God's grace and mercy follow you wherever you go and whatever you do. May Jesus' teachings and redeeming love give you a disciplined, holy life. May the Holy Spirit's presence give you joy in serving others and being a light in this world's darkness. Go in peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace to you.